Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a Harvard pediatrician in 2021 summed up the impact of pandemic school closures this way. All kids will be affected. Some will get through this and be fine. They will learn from it and grow. But lots of kids are going to be in trouble. Education reporter Anya Kamenetz has written about the kids who were and are in trouble. She's done an autopsy of the first year of the pandemic and its impact on school-aged children and she finds the cost was enormous. Can we make it up to them? We'll talk with Kamenetz, whose new book is called The Stolen Year. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you're like me, a parent of school-age kids, you are in the frenzy of back-to-school season. New drop-off and pick-up time, school supplies to get, snacks to pack, teachers to meet. But you know what? I'm fine with all of it because I remember what it was like in 2020 trying to get my kindergartner to pay attention to a teacher on a screen or seeing my fourth grader do P.E. alone in her room or on forum, interviewing high schoolers struggling to make sense of it all. Some of my friends don't have siblings, so they feel super lonely, and we try to keep in contact um, through, like, texting or even sometimes video calls and just pretend that we're, like, at school maybe or something because it's it's super lonely. That was Jalisa Gomez-Reyes from a show that we did on March 25th, 2020. School closures were a seismic shift in students' lives, and many, too many, are still dealing with the consequences, says writer and education reporter Anya Kamenetz, who has taken a hard look at its impact in a new book called The Stolen Year. And listeners, we want to hear from you. How did school closures affect you? Or if you're a caregiver, how did it affect your kids? What do you remember most? You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and post your stories there. Anya Kamenetz, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Can you take us back to where you were in March of 2020 when schools closed and what thoughts went through your mind? Yes, I was in my home office in Brooklyn. My daughters were three and eight years old at the time. And of course, I was an education reporter. My job had suddenly pivoted to become all remote. And I knew that it was going to be a really big deal because of my experiences as a young reporter 
in my hometown in New Orleans covering Katrina. Mm. And that was the main thing in recent memory that I could think of where in an American city schools had shut down. And the consequences were extreme and they lasted a really long time for those kids in that city. And so I knew this was going to be something to pay attention to. What were some of those consequences? For the children of Katrina, they were out of school for just a few weeks on average. They enrolled in other schools elsewhere and then started to come back to the city um, as schools reopened in the end of the fall of um, 2005. They did not resume their academic trajectories, um, you know, what we call learning loss, for two years on average. And for teenagers, there was a real effect in terms of drifting out of school altogether. So high school graduation rates and college going rates took a hit. And you could kind of see that wave of trauma propagate through the generation so that 10 years later in New Orleans, there was still fewer kids going to college compared to before the storm. Wow. And partly it was losing out on the academics of school, but also it was because schools play such a broad role, right? Not just a deep learning role, but just a broad role socially. That's right. I mean, schools are uh, have a unique role, I would say, in modern life and particularly in American society. So I think we, we may be more aware now than we were before that um, we don't have social welfare programs in this country for families. We don't have paid leave. We don't have childcare. Um, we have schools. And so that is the place where kids go. And, um, you know, so many kids that don't have safe homes, 30 million children that depend on the school um, food program, and um, a place that is safe for children. Um, that's really what schools are all about. Well, we already have listeners writing in, sharing and remembering that period and the effect that it's having now. This listener writes, I had two teens during COVID. My son loved remote school. He liked the flexibility of rolling down to class in his pajamas. And he thought that he was less distracted because there was no one goofing off with him in class. Mm -hmm. My daughter was also in high school and initially liked COVID school because it removed the FOMO, the fear of missing out that she felt socially. But over time, COVID had a huge impact on both kids' social skills. It took them a while to reintegrate back into in-person school. I've also noticed that high school kids at the various schools seem intent on partying more intensely. They seem to really treasure their time together and want to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. Anya, you profiled a lot of families across the country, but you also spent quite a bit of time in California, especially the Bay Area. Can you tell us the story we're hearing about teens, but I'm also wondering if you could tell the story of the kindergartner whose uh, parent was unable to get a computer, able to take a computer uh, for her kindergartner for her job, which she needed to take her child with her for. Right. So this was a family that I met um, through a really amazing kindergarten teacher in um, the Mission District. And this is a community school, so it provides a lot of resources. It's mostly um, recent immigrants in that school. And um, the family that you're talking about, I called Elisa and Serena, um, yes. her, Serena her four-year-old daughter. Uh, she was a, um, an immigrant from Peru. When lockdown started, um, she kept her essential job cleaning hotel rooms. And so Serena rode the bus with her to school to the hotel every day. There was no childcare. And she sat in the rooms and was on her phone. And that's how she experienced kindergarten with her incredible loving teacher on the other side of that screen, making videos, singing songs, trying to teach in Spanish and in English. Um, but you know, her mother told me, well, she'd miss the math lesson because the math lesson would happen when I would have to take the sheets down to the laundry. And so I couldn't be there to make sure that she got onto the math lesson. 
I mean, it really underscores just the whole range of ways that different families experience school closures and how much inequities at all levels contributed to what the experiences were or privileges would contribute to what the experiences were. I mean, absolutely. You know, a school fulfills very different roles for different families depending on um, what they have at home. And it sometimes seemed like the remote learning paradigm was based on the notion that there would be an adult there and there would be internet, there would be quiet. You know, I can't tell you, I mean, I talked to a teenager in New Orleans who was overseeing a household full of children. There were 14 people living in one house in New Orleans and she was the one who had to get them all on their Zooms um, and while the adults went out to their jobs again. And so it's just hard to understand how that became, you know, what we were offering kids in lieu of the school. But we were, and you note this, we were very much motivated with regard to deciding to close the schools, whether it be parents or school administrators, and many people across the board, not all, but many, broadly felt that the best way to keep kids safe from this really new and scary virus was to close them. Can you talk about the the trade-offs we were weighing, sort of what what the the environment, the fear was like then? You know, I, I'm not sure that we did weigh the trade-offs as mm. carefully as we could have. I think, you know, shutting school down in March 2020 was not a controversial decision. It happened in 190 countries. It happened in, to nine out of 10 school children around the world. The important question to ask is what then? What is the decision path that we then followed? And what happened was that America followed a decision path that was much closer to very large developing world countries like India and Brazil, which was that there was an enormous amount of inequality and an in shocking level of inertia when it came to reestablishing these services for children. I mean, there are countries like the Philippines that are just now getting back to school, not because of the virus, but because of the social dysfunction that attended the response. And honestly, I have to compare the United States more to that than to countries that really had their act together and were able to prioritize kids. Is that why you call this year, well, you call your book, The Stolen Year? Why yes, stolen? That, yeah. That's right, because these were decisions made by adults and they were no, for, for no fault of children's own. And so when I, if, you know people say, well, this was lost or this was missed, but it's not a deficit that the children have. It's something that we as adults have to work hard to make up for. And that's why I put the impetus on us. Yeah. I understand that your initial proposal for the book was to call it the lost year, though. What made you change your mind? It was really, it was feedback that I got from people saying that you're going to label these kids as marked or as, uh, you know, broken in some way. And that's not at all my intention. I really want to place the emphasis on what we have to do to fix it. And so the stolen year implies that there is something that needs to be redressed here. And do you feel like that's possible through what you have documented? Because that's really what you've done for the last, that first year and more, I think it's really March 2020 through 2021 is what your book covers. Yeah. Based on that, do you feel like it's possible? This is a question where it, we're not asking, it's not about me predicting the future, it's about saying what needs to happen, right? So it will happen if we will it. If we change our society and we decide from this point forward that we are going to remediate, we are going to fund schools, we're going to fund families, we're going to give them the services, I believe 
pretty much every single kid has the ability and the opportunity to recover from this. And, and that's really, um, you know, so that it's, I would, you know, if we think it's possible, we will make it happen. We're talking with author and former longtime NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz about the impact of pandemic school closures on kids. Her new book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And you, our listeners, are weighing in with your thoughts. Anne writes, I appreciate this work to understand the problem, but what a gross fixed mindset about learning. I mean, what is school still but inculcating compliance by teaching kids mostly everything they need to know to be an educated person in the 19th century. We were so lucky we had a remote connection, but making kids do school the same way remotely was ridiculous and punishing. This sister writes, my sister has elementary school kids in public school in New York City. To say that COVID was a disaster for their learning and the family's mental health is an understatement. The fact that the city seemed determined to open bars and restaurants but unable to open schools spoke volumes about who really matters to our society. Listeners, if you want to weigh in, you can by telling us how school closures affected your kids. Also, how are they now? Have they recovered or are they still struggling? Or if you're a student... Or somebody listening to this who went through school closures in K-12 schools and want to weigh in as well, you can. We'd love to hear from you. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We'll, we'll go into the break listening to a comment from Edward Huang, who was another student that I interviewed on March 25th, 2020, trying to better understand what would happen. Here's Edward. So I was actually planning to take the SAT the next day, um, the next day after my school shut down, and then my SAT was canceled. So now I'm really uncertain on what um, standardized tests I'm going to do, how I'm going to apply to colleges um, without standardized tests or with a, with a different, with like a lower test score than I would have gotten today. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Fake images and videos have become easier to generate by anyone, for bad and for just entertainment. Dali can take any words you type in, like purple kitten snorkeling in the style of Monet, and create that as a picture. So how should we think about this new landscape? How should we deal with misinformation or even disinformation with easier to access and use uh, image generators? Berkeley professor Hani Farid joins us to share the latest technologies and his fears and hopes for this brave new world. And we want to hear from you, listeners. You can share your thoughts ahead of the show. What do you love or fear about the new frontier of image generation and video? You can email forum at kqed.org, or you can leave your thoughts in a voicemail, 415-553-3300. This hour, we're looking back on the first year of pandemic school closures. And uh, I want to play a little bit from... Kadir Scott, a senior at Oakland Technical High School, who shared with me what were some of the big events that he had been looking forward to that he was sad to miss. Prom. Prom is definitely one of the biggest ones. Uh, Senior grad night. It was like, it it was going to be so fun. Everybody had all these plans. Um, And then when this all happened, it was just like a total bummer because as a High school, you know, that's one of the main things you look forward to is like your your prom and like your senior activities. Um, so having that canceled for me is, is definitely uh, not a good not a good experience for me. And that was Kadir Scott, who was a senior in 2020 when schools closed. We're talking with Anya Kamenetz, education reporter and writer. And Anya, you have talked about how um, school closures affected teens and young kids very differently. What was it like for the older students? Yeah, so the research um, from New Orleans and from other places around the world would suggest that for teenagers, there's a danger that they separate from their education and get off on a different lifetime trajectory um, if they're interrupted. And that's exactly what we saw happening. Um, We we saw some teenagers really investing in their paid essential jobs because that was – Honestly, they needed the money, they were helping their families, and it was a place that they could go where they couldn't go to school. So that was one aspect. Then you saw so many teenagers who just experienced, um, you know, what you just heard in that um, cut, which was a loss of their future, the milestones that they are once in a lifetime and they're never going to get them back, and the inability to really make plans or set goals. And I, I heard from so many kids who went from, you know, high school on Zoom to college on Zoom? And how do you feel like your life is moving forward when you're just stuck in the same house? Well, let me go to callers now. Kim in Berkeley. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Good. Good. I just wanted to, I haven't heard a lot of discussion, especially in San Francisco, about the disparity. Um, My kids attend not only a private school, but what's also identified as an independent school. And they were out in March, but back in school hybrid every other day as early as October of that year. And I just haven't heard discussion around, I'd say around 90% of the independent schools in San Francisco were up and running while the public schools were still closed. Are we having any discussion about that? Um, Kim, thank you. Yeah. Anya, what is your reaction to what Kim was saying? 
Yeah, I think it's a really important point to dig up and, and really um, shows the underlying, um, you know, inequities that, that drive the entire system. So, you know, nine out of 10 kids in general attend public schools. Not a lot of kids had the opportunity to even switch into private schools because a lot of private schools with social distancing, they weren't able to increase their enrollment very much in the fall of 2020. So it was pretty much if you had the means to be there before, um, you know, many well-resourced private schools were able to move heaven and earth, install new ventilation, have outdoor classrooms, do what it takes to get kids into school safely. D daily COVID testing, if that's what they needed, they would get it. And that, you know, why were we not able to muster the same creativity and honestly attitude that it took to get kids back in classrooms on the public side? You also talk about of the kids who were affected disproportionately, there were specific categories of kids that even felt that more than others, in particular mm -hmm. kids with special needs. And I'm wondering if you could tell the story of Jonah. Yeah, Jonah, um, I heard from his father um, very early on in the pandemic. And um, he had been, uh, you know, he grew up in San Francisco. He had been on a two-year journey of getting his individualized education plan and his special education plan set the way it needed to be because he had autism, dyslexia, ADHD, and he's making huge academic progress when everything shut down. In fact, his mother remembers they were in an IEP meeting, if you know what that is, um, as a special education parent, getting there, you know, and he spoke up for himself. He was proud of himself. And then literally school shut down. And he was not able to engage in online learning. He found it excruciating. He told me he just missed his friends. He missed playing tag. He couldn't concentrate on the learning. And he fell into a pattern of really intense um, opposition, tantrums, almost everyday explosive behavior. And the outlets that he used to have were not there. I mean, he told me about, you know, trying to go to a skate park and the skate park is padlocked shut. Right. And, and that was like the thing that he loved to do, be on his Razor scooter. So it was so, so difficult for him and obviously for his family. But still, we also have comments like this. And I remember when we were doing shows about school reopening, these really valid points. For example, Julie writes, friends in our Tenderloin community lost family members to COVID and are still getting second and third infections as people work dangerous jobs as cooks and live in cramped quarters with no room to isolate. The school closures saved lives because we had vaccines or because we had vaccines or treatments and I will always be grateful. Uh, I, I, maybe they meant to say we had no vaccines or treatments and I will mm -hmm. always be grateful to SF Unified School District leadership for putting safety first, even when more privileged, privileged families put immense pressure on them. What do you think of that? You know, I can't step on anybody's lived experience. I have to point to the fact that as a nation, we have one of the highest rate of death from COVID of any wealthy nation. So there needs to be a lot of humility about what the efficacy was of particular measures that we took. There are many, many examples of wealthy countries that managed to prioritize schools while closing bars, while closing restaurants when needed during surges and decided that they were going to do what it took to keep the schools and the child cares open safely. And that's something we didn't do and something we have to examine. So are you saying that there are so many underlying or contributing factors to the way that COVID impacted us and the death rate um, and that schools were just a part of this? Or are you even saying that uh, schools did not make a big difference in terms of saving lives? School I'm saying closures. that we had evidence from the beginning that you could operate schools without increasing transmission. 
in a very intense way. There was there were evidence that schools could be open safely. And so the question is not, you know, open schools or closed schools. It's open schools and keep them open safely. How do we do that? That's what we didn't try to do. Hard enough. That's what I think. Mm. Let me go to caller Heather in Oakland. Hi, Heather. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, I have two children in Oakland Public Schools, and we spent the first part of the pandemic living in Scandinavia. And our kids went back to school and to state preschool in the end of April of 2020. And so when we returned to the United States in July, I had full faith in our district and in our country that we were going to send back our kids to school that year. And I just repeatedly had my heart broken and my children's hearts broken over the closure of school for the full year. And I'm getting over that. But what I'm not getting over is how we are not reinvesting in those kids. We are not reinvesting in education. We're not acknowledging what happened that year. And we're not doing a lot to retain educators, especially in Oakland. We had a lot of turnover in our school with teachers And I think that year really, really sparked a lot of folks in education to question what it is that they wanted to do with their lives. And the fact that we didn't, they didn't get a lot of support, I think is, is telling about how we're acknowledging what that year did both to kids and to educators. Mm, Heather, your comment is making me think of a lot of different questions for Anya. Well, well, first off, Anya, You mentioned that initially when we closed schools, that decision was not that controversial. When did the tide start to turn on that? When did it feel like people were starting to put the pressure on to reopen them? It was really different from community to community. I mean, one of the families I followed is in rural Oklahoma, and they started asking for schools to be reopened by the end of that semester. Um, And then, you know, in communities where there was a more unified um, vision in in terms of restrictions, um, there were, you know, it was continued to be divisive, and there were families asking for a remote option in New York City um, this past year, 2021. So um, there's, uh, you know, there's going to be always a diversity of opinion and there's going to be different stakeholders. I really appreciate Heather bringing up the morale and the well-being of teachers because that's very important. The risk profile for adults with COVID is different than the risk profile for children. And so making sure that they felt safe, making sure that they felt supported is yet another area where we fell down, both in states that sent kids and student and teachers back into the classroom without even mask mandates on the one side, and in states that kept students home for so long while increasingly this frustration grew among certain members of the community. Can you talk about why in California, teachers, there was a large movement of teachers who really felt like it was not the right time to reopen schools uh, mm-hmm. during the summer of 2020 to reopen them for the fall. Can you can you talk a little bit about what some of the, the arguments were and the emotions were around that? So the arguments tended to be about the nuts and bolts of mitigation measures and data that was obviously continuously being updated. The emotions that I heard from teachers all over the country were about trust. Did they trust their school administrators? Did they trust the state leadership and the national leadership? And in un, in chronically under-resourced districts with chronically falling down school buildings, there was a complete and utter lack of trust that 
the districts would do what they said they would do in terms of keeping the schools clean and safe places to work. And that is what I heard from teachers over and over. And what do you think that lack of trust was fueled by? Uh, um, by the fact that teachers are underpaid for their education level, that they um, experience a lack of respect compared to many other developed countries, and that we underfund and under-resource school buildings so that they're in physically bad condition. Um, you know, I, I, I'll never forget um, Patricia, um, who's worked as a special education aide in Washington, D.C., telling me that she saw you know, rats in her uh, preschool classroom on her, you know, running over the kids while they napped. And so that's the classroom she's supposed to go back to in the middle of a pandemic and, and trust that her leadership will keep her safe. I fully understand that feeling. I also think that we still could have done more to keep the schools safe and keep them open. We're talking with Anya Kamenetz, who's written a new book called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And you, our listeners, are sharing your reflections. Angela writes... Being online so much more took a physical toll as well. More time in front of a screen, questionable ergonomics, less movement and no PE. My daughter's dance classes continued online, bless them. When kids went back to in-person classes, they were so, there were so, so many injuries. Their bodies had grown unaccustomed to movement. And of course, decreased physicality has an intellectual and emotional impact as well. I don't know how we could have done it differently, though. It was hard all round. Listeners, if you want to share how school closures affected you or your kids, you can by emailing them to forum at kqed.org, by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go next to Pete in Pacifica. Hi, Pete. Yes, thank you. My son was part of the infamous uh, high school class of 2020. And one thing that was an effect that no one seemed to talk about was how difficult it had been for him then to choose a college, because, of course, we were not allowed to visit any of these places. They told us all to stay away. As a result, he made a choice based on reputation that turned out really not to be the best choice for him. He went to a large University of California and basically sat in his dorm room and looked at his screen for two years and didn't really get anything like what we would expect a proper college experience to be, certainly not the full range of services, etc. Now he's left there and he's transferring to a place that probably would have been a better choice for him in the first place. So it's not a total loss, of course, but it's been very disorienting for him. And I'd like to know if your guest can talk about what the college experience has been for these people. I know that enrollment nationwide is down by about 10%. So I'd like to know how she's seeing the uh, transition for high school students into college over the last couple of years. Mm. Anna, can you do that for Pete? Yeah, that's a great question and a great point. Yes, enrollment is down. So that's a, a worrying sign for the nation as a whole. Um, the students that are coming in, um, you know, what people tell me is that they, they are missing these social um, abilities, right? They, they really uh, have a lot of work to do to kind of work on their ability to interact with other people and be social and overcome social anxiety, overcome video game, um, you know, habits and other things that, that happened when they were very solitary. And uh, I also have heard from professors that students really need um, different kinds of school design. They need more engaging lessons because their attention span, their concentration is shot and they need opportunities to have really interactive learning um, as well as um, being out in the community, which is something that's been, uh, you know, missing for a long time for many of them. 
I know one of the things that I was struck by is that you preface most of your chapters with quotes or statements by President Donald Trump in that first year of COVID. Um, Some of those are statements that he made that were very questionable about COVID, but there were others where he was really demanding that schools reopen. Why Mm -hmm. did you begin your chapters with statements from him? First of all, because it captured the experience that I had, and I think a lot of people had, of just this surreal reality of living through a pandemic. And this was the president, you know, that somebody was, the president was someone coming on national television and talking about injecting bleach. Um, Made it so much harder to really grok what was going on. And it was something I would often talk about with the families that I was, you know, um, checking in with constantly throughout the year. Um, And then the other thing was just to say that, you know, the person who was speaking the loudest with the biggest megaphone about reopening schools had so little credibility with half of the country. And so we, we ended up in such a twist where basically if you were a Biden voting county, you kept the schools closed longer. If you were a Trump voting county, you opened the schools. And that was not a public health based decision. Did you conclude in your from your research that we need a stronger federal person to be in charge of schools because it's very localized and and it's also very much up to the states for good reason to try to respond to specific issues within their regions. But how do you feel about the kind of sort of centralized leadership we have around education? So I would say that the United States is is very unique, pretty much unique in its structure of of localized independent school boards. That said, um, an a truly activist and leaderful and visionary secretary of education at the time of the pandemic, I think could have done a lot to marshal the resources that we're talking about in terms of whether it would be emergency federal funding. Data was really, really needed. We really needed to have the data about what school reopening was safe and what schools actually were doing. We still don't have a great picture of which schools were closed and opened across the country. Um, Instead, we had a secretary of education who believes that the Department of Education should not exist. You mean that was in Betsy DeVos? That's right. We're talking with Anya Kamenetz, looking back on the impact of the pandemic school closures of 2020 and 2021. And we'll have more with you, our listeners, who can share your thoughts at 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can also email your experiences to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now. At school in person, like before the pandemic, I was, you know, I was kind of focusing. And then during the pandemic and distance learning, and I feel like I just kind of lost it a bit. That was Azalea, a student at Richmond High School who reflected on her remote learning experience. She was interviewed for a KQED podcast called Mindshift. We are talking about remote learning. We're talking about what it was like to be doing remote learning in that first year of the pandemic when everybody was trying to make sense of a novel new virus that was killing people for unknown reasons. We're talking about this with education reporter and writer Anya Kamenetz. Her new book is The Stolen Year, where Kamenetz is asking us to consider why we did things the way we did, and did it have to be this way, and how to compensate kids for the loss of vital developmental experiences. You, our listeners, are sharing what it's been like for you. And let me read this listener's long reflection, but I'd like to read it. This listener says, I'm a veteran high school teacher in Southern California, passionate about teaching. The disaster in the educational system during lockdown was not caused by the lockdown per se, but by the failure of federal, state, and local authorities to take action. I took action myself, taught all my students how to use Zoom. And when the lockdowns were announced, my students and I were well-prepared, not panicked. My students and I continued productively with 15 minutes at the beginning of each session to discuss feelings about COVID before getting into the lessons, which had a mix of lecture, discussion, group activities, and even games. Then the district put in the mandate that teachers could not require the cameras be on. This destroyed so much. Students began to check in, but with screens off, checked out. Now, back in school, I am at risk of long COVID. Classes are packed at 38 students per room. My students are at risk of infecting their families. Despite my love of teaching, I am ready to retire as quickly as I can for reasons of my own health and mostly because the act of educating has been abandoned and replaced by monitoring and supervising students so at least parents can be free of them. There is so much in there, Anya. I don't know if there's anything in particular that, that you want to respond to from this listener. Um, I think it's it's one of the most heartbreaking disconnects of the pandemic that every teacher I know worked incredibly hard to make remote learning work and it still didn't work. Um, it just was this, you know, it's like shouting as loud as you can through a faulty connection. It's not going to work on the other side of the screen. And that's I think that's really at the core of the burnout um, that we're hearing teachers express all over the country. Let me go to Sarah in Berkeley next. Hi, Sarah. Uh, hi, hi. Um, this is a uh, this whole discussion resonates very deeply in our family. We have two kids in Berkeley public schools uh, who are now in eighth and fifth grade. My eighth grader has an IEP for autism, ADHD, and a bunch of other issues associated with that. She was mid fifth grade when the school shut down. She had been flourishing. Uh, her IEP was functioning. She was making friends and learning. Now she's in eighth grade, and in many ways, she is still behind where she was socially, emotionally, emotionally, and academically where she was in fifth grade. Uh, her IEP 
continues to be non-functional, um, in large part due to the fact that so many special educators have left the system. Mm. Um, and it, she, uh, she absolutely was not able to access learning remotely. Mm. Thank you, Sarah. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. And and I do wonder, Anya, I'm sure you get asked a lot because a lot of it does fall to families what they can do to help their kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I just it's so unfair and special education kids are not some tiny minority. We're talking about 14% of all students and um it is so often their parents, it's so often their mothers that are their advocates and that accompany them through the incredible mountain of bureaucracy that you have to scale in order to get services. Um, and, you know, it's, so it's really hard for me to, and I, I mean, here I hear from kid, parents every day who are in this. Um, and the only thing that I can offer is, you know, definitely seek solidarity, make sure that there are groups of other people, networks that you're a part of that have those resources, that information, because it is a really hard fight. And I think a lot of the fight has to happen in a legal and political way. I mean, the way that we were, um, you know, basically schools were forced to include students with disabilities. It happened in courts um, and not by goodwill. So figuring out what the next step of that fight is and making sure that kids get the compensation, the compensatory services that they are entitled to. And obviously that requires teachers being trained and equipped and supported as well. Let me go to caller Greg next. Greg in Pleasant Hill. Hi, Greg. Hi, thank you for the reporting and the topic. I think it's very important. But I am going to be someone of a voice of dissension about this entire topic. Okay. I think our kids are strong. I think our kids are adaptable. I think there were many generations in this country and in other countries that have faced massive upheaval in school, whether it's World War I, World War II, and a shared challenge it promotes discourse, and it makes people stronger. And I truly believe that, yes, there are children emotionally impact, impacted by this, you know, beyond just the logistics, but I really believe the main contributor to that are the emotional impacts to the parents that they are projecting onto their kids. Mm. I went to Pleasant Hill Middle School last night for uh, the school opening. It was wonderful. The teachers are ready to go. The kids are strong. And I just think we need to stop focusing on the logistical challenges and get back to the task at hand. I think our kids are going to be fine. Thank you. Oh, Greg, thanks. What's your response to Greg, Anya? I love that optimism. And I think that if you're in a, a school community, it's absolutely the right attitude to bring. I mean, I close my book with a discussion of the possibilities of post-traumatic growth, you know, that we can, as a, as a community, as a society, and as a generation, actually perceive positives. It doesn't mean that we wash away or hand wave what went wrong. And it doesn't mean that we avoid discussing it when it comes up naturally. I think it should. Um, it does mean that we we are able to highlight um, the strengths that people discovered personally, the strengths of their relationships, their families, the people that stood up for them, and uh, the the new sense of appreciation for the for the tiny things in life. I mean, you, Mina, mentioned you know school supplies. Like just walking with my kids through Staples the other day and seeing them, you know, go through the notebooks and and looking forward to being with their friends. That normalcy is something that I have a huge amount of gratitude for, and I want my kids to as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um... We have realized just the incredible value of public education. And we mentioned at the top of the show the 
the impact it has very broadly, how it's a hub of so many social services. Uh, we learned during the pandemic that schools were, were centers for feeding hungry children, that they were sites for being able to identify if kids are being abused in their families. They could serve as childcare when needed so that people could work as well. And we saw the mental health toll that it took on kids to have these schools closed. But I wonder, Anya, if you feel like generally as a nation, we have also, that that has translated into a much greater appreciation for public schools. Because you just talked about Betsy DeVos before at the last break mm-hmm. and about how she felt like the Department of Education shouldn't even exist, for example. Has that changed? I believe that the political enemies of public education in this country smell blood in the water. They see that enrollment down. They see that teachers are burnt out and there are staff vacancies. They have mobilized activists who are attacking teachers and students because of their gender identity, who are attacking schools for how they teach history. They've they've successfully mobilized the culture wars into something that is wielded against schools. And the Supreme Court this summer, with a pair of decisions, drove a truck through the wall separating church and state, bringing prayer into schools and funding for religious schools. These are absolutely undermining to how public education functions in the society, which is a place for all kids to be able to be and to be together so that they can learn how to be citizens in a democracy. I think that's at stake right now. I don't think that we are upholding the value of public education. I think it is very weak and very overshadowed right now. Sobering. Let me go to caller Barbara in San Bernardino. Hi, Barbara. Hi there. I just want to make a real quick comment. Uh, listening to the uh, one of the last callers who mentioned that he wanted to retire as soon as he could. Well, after a year and a half of virtual teaching, I was a special educator, a resource specialist. So I worked with students who had IEPs. I felt like I was not... Uh, teaching them in the way I needed to. Um, I wasn't uh, reaching them. You know, some of them would only show up half the time. And uh, the other kids that maybe were online weren't really uh, engaged, even though I was seeing them by themselves. Um, it just wasn't a good situation. I After that last year, I could retire, and I did. Mm. And uh, because not only it was bad for them, it wasn't a good situation, I think, certainly for teachers. And well, uh, I just wanted to uh, make that comment. Thank you. Well, Barbara, thank you for making the comment. And I'm sorry the district lost you. Um, and let me just remind listeners that we are talking about the impact of pandemic school closures on kids. And and also we're hearing from a lot of teachers. It sounds like this was inspired by Anya Kamenetz's new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me read a couple more comments. This listener writes, I'm listening to Forum now and wish I could call in. One of my children has an autoimmune disease and the other has 
preemie lung disease. They are part of the group these closures were protecting. And as someone listening from the other side, the side who is grateful for taking the safety of the students and educators first, this is drawing up a lot of fierce emotion. It reminds me that my family and my families and families like ours will always be the minority. Quote, most kids don't have serious reactions. Quote, we can open schools safely for most children. Science says that many children are even asymptomatic, but likely not my children, because we are not most. This is no one's fault, but unfortunate and sad nonetheless. Thanks for the engaging conversation. Well, thanks for the really thoughtful comment, listener. I am struck by the sister saying this is no one's fault, because I think in some way, Anya Kamenetz, you are saying, actually, um, it is, (laughs) that we can point some blame, uh, though I'm not 100% sure where you would point it, Anya. Yeah, um, I think that that there was a lack of credible federal leadership. There was a lack of leadership from our public health authorities. Public health authorities in Europe and the World Health Organization spoke increasingly strongly in favor of prioritizing schools for reopening. We didn't hear that from our CDC. There is uh, blame to be cast on governors. There were Democratic governors in Rhode Island and Connecticut that did prioritize school reopening and did whip um, their their district into shape and said, we're going to figure out a way to do this. So I, you know, there's fingers to be pointed all the way down the line. I think that there's uh, a, a lot of reckoning and there's a lot of angry people out there and voters out there um, on, on both sides of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, that that's, I think our political leadership, the, the higher that you get in that um, echelon, the more you have to think about the role that they played. Well, um, resources to try to consider the needs of all children who deserve education. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I feel like it, you have also, your book is an indictment of our of our culture not centering children, of the U.S. not centering children. Is That's that exactly a, right. That's that, is exa- yeah. that, is, that is exactly right. Yes. Well, Holly writes, though in-person school obviously would have been better, we had a very good year and a half when my daughter did online school. We were fortunate that she was in seventh grade when it started, so she was old enough that I didn't have to take care of her, and she already had friends from sixth grade, so she was happy to see them online every day. She danced a lot at home every day, so she did a lot of physical activity. I'm a single parent, and the time she was home so much was a great opportunity to grow even closer. We could meet for meals and then go off to do our own work and spend evenings together after dinner. I know I was lucky, but we had a lot of positives. Those are some of the things I do want to focus on since we are coming up to the end of our hour. But Anya, do talk about the things that you documented that came out of it that were positive, the silver linings, both, you know, publicly, broadly, but also even personally for you. Well, I think uh, publicly, we can definitely say that we had a national conversation about childcare, about uh, the need for paid family leave. Those things um, dropped out of the Build Back Better package, but they, I believe, have a legislative future that would finally put us on the same page with other wealthy nations in terms of how we support families. Child tax credits, another one. Personally, I have to say that, um, you know, I definitely had the privilege of spending more time with my children and more unstructured time with my children. And it does cause, I think, especially privileged families to think about how much do you actually want to overschedule your kids versus having time with them at home. I think that's something that's really worth thinking about. And not to mention understanding what resilience really means, you know, what it means to be adaptable and to cope with things getting canceled or things not going your way. These are 
all life lessons that all of us have to do. And I think in that pandemic year, as hard as it was, I do see the development opportunities for a lot of kids. I remember that technology was deemed as the new frontier for education. (laughs) What did we learn about its limits that we can take as lessons? Um, I mean, serious people in ed tech would never have said we should put kindergartners in front of video chat. Like that was never the the best practice. This was emergency remote learning. It wasn't some kind of, you know, technological wizardry. Certainly on the high school level, we heard from teachers who, you know, a teacher a comment who said that they were able to do active learning and, and, and be somewhat successful, but only with the video on. And I think that's an important message. What we all learned was that, yes, it is possible to have learning experiences. And there are some kids who are even going to adapt and do quite well, but it's going to be a force multiplier for inequities because the kids that struggle um, in a regular classroom all the more often are going to be the same kids that struggle even more online. And so the more you spend time online, the gaps are only going to grow. And that's exactly what we've seen. So while we were focused a lot on the failures at so many levels, there were people who in your book you point out really innovated and did things really well in terms of trying to meet people broadly. Can you share the story of the person in Oakland who shifted the focus of their nonprofit to better meet school needs? Yeah. So Lakeisha Young with the Oakland Reach um, had started an organization that was focused on kind of mobilizing families as a political voice for school quality. And when the pandemic started, she shifted into direct aid. They raised money, gave laptops, gave food. And she also created a program that hired um, some of the parents that were in her community to do outreach and to support other families. So they were able to kind of take their own program funding and put it directly in the pockets of those families to then um, go and support other families. And they created a learning hub program that was a summer school online program with both enrichment as well as um, basic um, you know, math and reading. And they were able to uh, raise, meaningfully raise the scores of the kids in that program and get a very high level of engagement. And they pursued that and expanded it and partnered with the Oakland Public Schools um, to make it even bigger and better. Well, Anya, thanks so much for for profiling so many families, sharing the range of different experiences and making us remember what did happen in that year so that we can look at what might be possible, what might be ways to help compensate children for the losses that may have occurred in their lives. Really appreciate talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great discussion. Anya's book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. My thanks to listeners for sharing their experiences and reflections as well, and to Grace Wan for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!